0: Leave no one behind. It's a sacred promise our military makes to all who serve in our uniform. To keep that pledge, in October 2003, the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, JPAC, was created by President George W. Bush with a mission of finding and bringing home America's missing in action, no matter where or when they were lost. I'm Oliver North, and this War Stories podcast, you'll meet members of a military unit unlike any other in the world. The Pentagon dubbed it J-PAC, the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command. In 2010, in between deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, and other hotspots, our Fox News War Stories team was dispatched to document how J-PAC accomplished their unique military mission. We began at J-PAC headquarters at Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii, where 18 teams of specialized investigators, forensic scientists, and active-duty military personnel were based when not deployed around the globe. These j teams had a daunting task, traversing trackless deserts, snake-infested jungles, remote mountain ranges, and ocean depths to recover, identify, and return to their loved ones the remains of missing U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, guardsmen, and Marines. Success for j required cutting-edge forensic technology, age-old detective work, and sometimes the skill of explosive ordnance technicians. In this riveting podcast of war stories, come with us as we accompany the JPAC search and rescue recovery teams who take on these high risk missions. Meet scientists devoted to the task of identifying the remains of those who have fallen and hear the powerful account of a mission accomplished. Lieutenant Frederick Joel Ransbottom, an Oklahoma native, was declared MIA missing in action in Vietnam in 1968. Listen as his family recounts the 38 years they spent searching for answers and how a brother-in-arms provided clues to what happened to the young lieutenant. You'll also learn how the dedicated sleuths of j tackled one of the most enduring mysteries of World War II, the whereabouts of 19 Marine Raiders lost on Macon Island in 1942. In January 2015, j was merged with the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. They are at work today analyzing, investigating, recovering, and identifying the remains of American MIA personnel so the families of the missing may have closure on what happened to their loved ones. The mission, Leave No One Behind, continues. Missing in action, three devastating words for the family of any member of the U.S. Armed Forces. Those three words can mean a lifetime of uncertainty about what happened to a loved one. But for the dedicated sleuths who work here, in the world's largest skeletal forensic laboratory, thousands of families would never know what happened to their missing soldier, sailor, airman, guardsman, or marine. Good evening, I'm Oliver North. This is War Stories, coming to you from the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command j at Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. The task of finding even one of the 88,000 Americans who've been declared MIA since the start of World War II can be a high-risk mission. j recovery teams traverse trackless deserts, negotiate snake-infested jungles, and scale remote mountain ranges, all to find a single MIA. Join us for the stories of once-missing heroes who waited decades to come home and those
1: who work tirelessly to leave no one behind. It's, it's a job that's unlike anything else, really, anywhere.
2: When I tell people what I do, they're like, that job exists? Really? You, you do that?
3: Just being in the military and knowing that uh, you know some people didn't make it back, it's, it's a huge burden. JPAC is the only military unit of its
1: kind, tasked with finding Americans missing in action. If an American serviceman died in a past conflict, and the remains weren't found,
4: we're gonna look for them.
1: For General Hal Moore, who led soldiers in the battle for Vietnam's
0: Idrang drang valley, it's a sacred duty.
4: In the day that uh, President Johnson got on TV, 28 July 1965, I remember his very words. I have today ordered to Vietnam the Air Mobile Division. Now, I had told my men before we left Benning, I'm gonna bring you all home. Some of us are gonna be killed all coming home. Ultimately, our mission
1: is to fulfill a promise that this country made to some men, and a lot of them didn't come home. And our job is to bring them home.
0: After victory in World War II, the United States began bringing the boys home. Many of those who made the ultimate sacrifice were buried in U.S. cemeteries overseas. But after nearly four years of global conflict, the whereabouts
1: of many who had fallen were unknown. So the, the United States has had this, this desire and this commitment to recovering and identifying its war dead. Dr. Thomas Holland is a scientific director at JPAC. Well, in 1947, they created a central identification laboratory, the, the predecessor of this organization, and it identified tens of thousands of men lost during World War II.
0: The designation of, of this command joint POW-MIA
1: Accounting Command. Where did that come from? There was the concern when when the Vietnam War ended that there were still potentially live POWs and certainly MIAs that that were unaccounted for. What numbers are we looking at here? About 80,000 from World War II, 8,100 from Korean War, about 1,800 now from the Vietnam War, 120 from the Cold War.
0: The process of
3: finding those missing in action
0: begins with an investigation at j headquarters in Hawaii.
3: Well, these are the um, casualty files, the personnel files that our historians and analysts use to do the analysis uh, before the investigative team launches to go out to a site.
0: Armed with files comprised of after-action reports, eyewitness accounts and medical records, investigation teams like those led by Major
3: Sean Stinchin
0: travel to battlefields around the globe. On a routine mission, how many cases would you, would you be expected to cover?
3: Um, in my experience, on, on about a 30-day mission, we cover anywhere from 15 to 20 cases.
1: Many of the places we go to simply cannot imagine that this country is doing this. They cannot imagine that we are expending the, the effort and the resources to find the remains of a private or a corporal. And so there's a certain level of suspicion and uh, wariness. The
3: first thing we'll do when we get back here is give a briefing to our commander and, and request that the site be approved for excavation.
2: And then the recovery teams get assigned and we go out and do the actual archaeological dig on the site.
0: Lieutenant Leslie Alexander, a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, has led recovery teams to some of the most inhospitable places on
3: the planet.
2: It's an honor to be chosen to come here, for sure.
3: We're responsible for the overall safety and conduct of the recovery mission.
0: Marine Captain George Murphy has commanded over ten
3: missions. Are the team compositions always the same? The team leader looks at the mission, uh, what the requirements are, and uh, tailors his uh, team accordingly. The recovery team includes medical specialists,
0: engineers, and scientists. They have to be prepared for anything.
3: You have the Explosive Ordnance uh, Disposal Technician, because we do run into a lot of unexploded ordnance on these missions. Uh, We are in war zones, uh, so uh, it's there.
1: I was on a recovery mission in Cambodia in 93. The Khmer Rouge were still active, and they mortared our base camp at night. So we had to kind of evacuate while they were shooting up our helicopters.
3: You have uh, the civilian member of the team, which is the anthropologist.
5: I go to the field, and I make the decisions in terms of what we do.
0: Uh, for the excavation. Anthropologist Bradley Sturm is a veteran of more than twenty recovery operations.
5: There's inherent dangers Just, just in working in the terrain. There are many, many species of poisonous snakes, some of the most poisonous on the planet.
2: Leeches, snakes, boars, some sites even tigers, things like that are definitely a concern.
3: Despite the dangers, the teams aren't deterred. Uh, once we get on the deck, sir, we'll uh, construct uh, supporting equipment for anthropologists and most likely containing a screening station. And
0: when you get out there, do you have local labor to assist in
3: the work? We certainly
0: do, and without them, there's there's no possible way we can do this, this
5: mission.
3: Once we get into the hole and we start digging, we use hand tools, so it's, uh, it's a slow process. We're looking
1: at fragments that are hardly recognizable as skeletal remains anymore.
0: Once on-site work is complete, any remains and all evidence are sent to the Central Identification Laboratory in Hawaii for analysis. Okay,
6: this is the, uh, the main lab floor of the Central Identification Laboratory.
0: An expert in forensic identification, Dr. John a, Bird manages episode. hundreds of open cases.
6: These are cases that at this moment are needing to receive some kind of analytical attention by either an anthropologist or an odontologist. At this laboratory typically at any one time has over 600 active cases.
0: I call them dentists,
6: you call them Odontologist. Odontologist. Where we have a good dental record, we might have a very strong positive ID that's going to come from that dental comparison.
1: Increasingly, about 80% of our cases we use DNA to some level now. It has revolutionized how we do business. We're going back to cases that we put back on the shelf and, and we're resolving those cases now because of DNA. We are trying to put together puzzle pieces that are not only 30, 40, 60 years old, but have been scattered by time and, and politics. You got family members, you got veterans
6: who are waiting, some very anxiously, for answers.
0: Coming up, World War II Marine Raiders storm a tiny Pacific island and leave behind a six-decade-long mystery. When War Stories returns, the sleuths who crack the riddle. forests in Europe, to steamy jungles in Asia, to the depths of the oceans, more than 80,000 Americans remain missing in action from World War II. Tell me how you came to go after some of Carlson's raiders in Macon Island. The uh,
5: Marine Raiders Association was very anxious for us to respond to their request to locate uh, the raiders that had been lost in 1942.
0: It took eight months after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor for the U.S. to begin a Pacific offensive, an island-hopping campaign aimed at Tokyo. During the buildup, the Marines established elite commando units they called the Raiders.
5: And it was created in part through consultation with Admiral Nimitz, who was very concerned about creating some sort of diversion in the Central Pacific, so the Japanese weren't exactly sure where we were going to come in full force.
0: Merritt Edson commanded the 1st Raider Battalion, The 2nd Battalion was led by this man, Lieutenant Colonel Evans Carlson, a Connecticut Yankee who had spent years in China before the war. His first mission, a stealth attack on the Japanese garrison at Macon Atoll, a tiny cluster of islands in the Central Pacific.
5: Colonel Evans Carlson devised this raid as basically the jumping off point for
4: the Marine Raiders. I heard about this Carlson Raider catch-me-kill-me outfit, you know. And so that's the outfit I wanted to go with. Arizona native Kenneth Mudhole
0: Merrill was just 17 when he volunteered to become one of the now legendary Raiders. Where did you pick up the nickname Mudhole?
4: Oh, that was Jimmy Roosevelt, the president's son. Give me that.
0: FDR's eldest, Major James Roosevelt, served as Carlson's executive officer. Once during a 50 mile march, the president's son came across a thirsty Merle drinking from a
4: puddle. And he says, Merle, he said, what are you doing drinking out of that thing? You know, that's a mud hole, don't you drink out of that? And then that was it, everybody,
7: yeah, mud hole,
4: get out of there, you know, so. And it stuck with me all these years. How did you get involved with the Macon Raiders?
7: My would have been brother-in-law, Robert Malding, joined the Raiders when Carlson put out the call.
0: John McCarthy is the author of Gung Ho Marines, the men of Carlson's Raiders. So the, the phrase gung ho.
7: Carlson brought it from China. It meant work together. But now it's go get them, Tiger, or all this stuff. They made a movie with that title. But it was, its original origin was with Carlson and the second Raider of the 7 August
0: 1942. The 1st Marine Division lands on Guadalcanal, beginning the bloody march toward Tokyo. To confuse the enemy, Admiral Nimitz dispatched two submarines, the USS Nautilus and the Argonaut, to make an island 1,200 miles from Guadalcanal. They left Hawaii carrying 220 of Carlson's Raiders.
4: Well, it was all packed in there like sardines. A small group of us would go up on top and exercise and everything, and then back down we'd go again. That air was awful nice because it got kind of smelly down there with all of us. By 16 August, Carlson, Roosevelt,
0: Mudhole, Merrill, and the rest of the raiders were off the coast of the tiny island. The raiders surveyed the Macon shoreline through the submarine's periscope before launching the next morning.
4: When it was time to go, we went up and inflated the rubber boats and... uh, put them over the side of the submarine and we jumped in. We caught that wave, boy, that wave took us clear up in there.
7: We were one of the first ones to hit, you know, the beach. They started landing at about four in the morning. By the time they all got organized on the beach, it was uh, close to six. And
4: we just held until we had orders to move on out.
7: It was a complete surprise to the Japanese. And uh, there was an accidental burst of a VAR that started it. My would-be brother-in-law, Bob, was hit in the chest with a a burst. killed him instantly. They killed most of the Japanese. By 10 o'clock, it was all over.
0: With the Japanese garrison eliminated, the Marines desperately struggled through the surf to get back to the submarines. Carlson counted 19 dead that had to be left behind.
4: Carlson gave the natives a $50 gold piece to bury them. And he asked them to bury them, and they did.
0: Decades after the war, the Pacific Islands still revealed the relics of battle, and America was determined to recover their missing in action, including the 19 raiders left behind.
7: The grave registration people, they didn't get to Macon until the war was over.
0: And did they find the graves?
7: No. And this was just the first of many trips to Macon to look for it. They had been there twice before and came up empty.
5: But they felt confident that they were out there, and they didn't close the case or the site and recommended a, a
0: follow-on. In 1999, j was determined to search yet again, and Bradley Sturm was the chief anthropologist. On Macon, the recovery team found a local islander who'd been a 16-year-old boy in 1942.
7: Help bury him. And he showed them within 10 meters of where the grave was.
5: As luck would have it, the first skeleton we found was of an islander, so I thought we had a native burial. We dug the next trench down, um, and at that time we hit a steel pot helmet. The Japanese had a similar-looking helmet. It was possible we had a Japanese burial, but once we pulled the first steel pot out, we knew we had the grave we were able to identify without question the most remarkable feeling I've ever had.
0: That's next on War Stories. For nearly six decades, Macon Island held a mystery, the location of the 19 Carlson Raiders buried there in 1942. 57 years later, j recovery team, including anthropologist Bradley Sturm, was on the verge of finding them.
5: We were able to identify the boundaries of the actual mass grave, and then we dug down very slowly uh, and then exposed the entire um, grave. And I think we could identify 13 individuals thrown in in a random fashion on the top layer of the mass grave. Uh, beneath that were six more.
4: Some of them still had their helmets on. You know, the natives buried them in honor. For Mud Merrill,
0: and the other Carlson Raiders, the night they left Macon Island is still fresh in their minds.
4: You could see the submarine kept blinking its light, you know, the red light, you know. When we finally got through the waves and everything, and by the way, sharks was all over the place too, you know. When they got to the submarine, why I couldn't even... <laughs> I, I was so tired that I couldn't even lift myself up.
0: Was it possible to get a firm head count?
4: I don't think there was really a head count until well, after we got back to Honolulu. For the simple reason, we didn't know who was on the Argonaut or who was on the Nava.
0: The celebration surrounding the Raiders' return to Hawaii was
4: unexpected. I was standing on the deck out there and I seen all these people out there and a band and everything. My gosh, I was I thought to myself, man, there must be
0: something important going on. When did your sister find out that her fiancé was missing in action?
7: In uh, 1942, and she got a telegram from Malding's parents. It was that he was, had been reported missing in action.
5: Our goal is to recover human remains. Uh, teeth and our bone next identification tags wallets rings things that could circumstantially point to specific individuals
0: what goes through your mind at that point I mean you've been digging out there you've been I mean you've been playing part cop part archaeologist part detective
5: that particular project was without question the most remarkable feeling I've ever had um, it was a tremendous amount of excitement
3: once we complete the uh, the mission and we found all we can find we'll uh, take them put them in a uh, You know, military casket. We'll do a repatriation ceremony, and uh, we'll fly them back here to Hawaii, where the identification process begins.
5: This is just a sample of what we recovered. I wanted to bring them out for you. We found uh, these items. You can see before us. We have a lensatic compass, an old lensatic compass. Haven't changed much. (laughs) Medical bandage uh, kit there, pocket knife, but also an awful lot of unexploded ordnance, including 60 live hand
0: grenades. All of which had to be pretty unstable at that point. Very
5: uh, very unstable. Our unexploded ordnance technician, as we were excavating, he would go in and, and, and remove them. Through our laboratory process, which actually took about one year, we were able to positively identify all of the 19 uh, raiders in that grave.
7: I was in constant contact with the forensic uh, anthropologist, and Bob was the last one identified.
4: I think John McCarthy's the one that called me and told me that... Uh hey, they found them, you know. And uh, it was really quite a wonderful thing, you know.
0: On 17 August 2001, exactly 59 years after they were left behind on Macon, 13 of the 19 Raiders were buried at Arlington National Cemetery.
4: Were you able to go to that? Oh, you bet I was there. How many of the Raiders were there for that, you remember? All the ones that could walk. Matter of fact, I was talking to one of the officers there, and he, he told me, he says, this is the biggest crowd that we've had since President Kennedy was buried here. I thought that was really quite an honor.
3: The most satisfying is being in the field and finding a person, because you know eventually that uh, somebody's you know, brother, sister, mother, father uh, is going gonna, gonna to be a major impact on their lives, and they've been waiting for it for a while
0: dog tags. For decades, these two small metal plates were the principal way our military identified its fallen. Now, new science and technology have changed everything. That's next on War Stories.
1: American servicemen died in a past conflict, and the remains weren't found. We're going to look for them. How often do you solve cases? Two a week, on average. Yeah, from small wars, about about a hundred a year.
0: Some are from the nearly 2,000 cases of Americans listed as missing in action in Vietnam.
8: My son, that was missing. It was unbelievable to me that it could happen.
0: Born in 1946, Frederick Joel Ransbottom grew up in Oklahoma City, the first son of World War II veteran Frederick Arthur Ransbottom and his wife, Laverne.
8: He loved to play football. He always had a ball in his hand, football or baseball, always.
0: His younger brothers, Larry and Donnie, revered their older sibling. Donnie remembers how active Freddie was.
9: mother always said he ran into a clothesline hole and busted his front teeth, and so they had that to the front tooth capped. By 1967,
0: the boy with a capped tooth was 20 years old. He left Oklahoma to join the Army, and in January the following year, Lieutenant Randsbottom deployed to Vietnam, serving with a 2nd Battalion 1st Infantry, his call sign,
8: Snoopy 6. He always wrote a lot of letters. Part of it would be something fun that the guys did. And his worry was for the men. He was worried about the guys.
0: What did you know about what he was doing? We
8: didn't know. We didn't know. And I guess I just naively thought, my husband came home and he'll be home.
0: But Freddie didn't come home. On 15 May 1968, his parents received the devastating news. Their son was missing in action and my world just
8: stopped. I could not believe that that this would happen. So I thought, okay, he's in a hospital someplace. We'll find him, you know, we'll find him, we'll find him.
0: The Rands Bottoms had begun a 38-year-long search for their beloved son, one that brought them face-to-face with the highest echelons of the American military.
8: We got a call from General Westmoreland's aide. General William Westmoreland,
0: former commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, met with a family in Oklahoma City.
8: It was a private meeting with us and our casualty officer. I didn't know your son, he said, but you know, I want you to know that, that had it not been for those men, we would have lost more men.
0: Despite Westmoreland's personal gesture, questions remain. Had he been killed? Was he a prisoner?
8: Now, Colonel, this was the nightmare. This was the 24/7 nightmare. Is he being mistreated? Is it cold? Is he hungry? What all parents think about. Laverne, how many trips do you make to Washington? We made all the meetings in Washington. It would have to be 35 or something like that because we always went to the meeting. Our letters were always to the government of the same thing. If there, you know, any additional information, you know. So much of it was negative, hopeless, and then again we would be hopeful.
0: Fred Rinsbottom didn't live to find out what happened to his son. He died in 1989, but Laverne never gave up, and after 28 years, one phone call changed her life.
8: Bill called one evening and said, I knew your son.
10: I had made contact with her earlier when I had seen uh, Lieutenant Ransbottom's picture in the uh, Daily Oklahoman.
0: Oklahoma native Bill Wright had served with Lieutenant Ransbottom in the 2nd Battalion, 1st Infantry. In 1996, he read in a local newspaper that his former platoon commander and fellow Sooner remained missing in action.
10: I knew at that time I was gonna do everything I could possibly to find who I could, live or dead.
0: What was Mrs. Ransbottom's response?
10: They were just happy. She had somebody that had been there and knew her son. In May
0: 1968, Bill Wright was a radio operator in Lieutenant Ransbottom's platoon.
10: We actually got Lieutenant Ransbottom in March. Uh, Lieutenant Ransbottom was uh, a breath of fresh air. Small framed, redheaded, but knew exactly what he was doing every minute.
0: On 10 May, the unit reinforced Cam Duk, a Special Forces base located in the rugged mountains bordering Laos. Wright was assigned to Observation Post or OP One.
10: It's actually on the hills that actually surround the airstrip there at Cam uh, Duk. Uh, Lieutenant Ransbottom was sent to OP Two. OP-3 was on the north end, and OP-1 was on the south end. And they was basically on ridges that overlooked it.
0: That's where they were when the North Vietnamese Army attacked.
10: It all started on the morning, early morning of May 12th. <laughs> OP-3 got probed first. They run into some NVA. A couple of guys were wounded and stuff, but they didn't lose anybody. About 2 o'clock in the morning, OP-2, where Lieutenant Ransbottom was, was hit. They hit him with about 25 or 30 mortar rounds just immediately. We're all modern the radio and stuff. As the
0: NVA overran OP-2, Lieutenant Ransbottom's voice came over the radio.
10: And Lieutenant Ransbottom says uh, we're shooting them as they come through the bunker door.
0: That's the last communication you hear from
10: It was me. the last communication from there. At my OP, about... Four o'clock in the morning, they hit us. Now they can just pour into the OP and stuff.
0: Faced with an overwhelming attack, the order was given to a bend in the duck Forward Operating Base.
10: We got back in about noon, back into the airstrip itself, which was under attack at that time.
0: The evacuation by air was an extraordinary effort. Seven aircraft were lost. On the ground, seven Americans were killed with 10 missing in action, including Lieutenant Ransbottom. Bill Wright made it out on a Chinook.
10: I uh, spent two weeks in a hospital and then went back to the field.
0: And how did Bill make contact with you?
8: By telephone. And that was our first contact with Bill or with someone who was there who, who knew what went on.
0: Two years after calling Laverne, Wright was asked to join a JPAC recovery team headed to Kamduk.
10: They flew me to Hawaii, and uh, I met the recovery team there, then we uh, flew to Vietnam. For
0: two weeks, they searched the hills around Kamduk for the missing Americans. No remains were found on OP-2, but JPAC had a renewed commitment to the search. And Bradley Sturm was now on the case.
5: For the Vietnam War, we have known about most of these sites since the war. It's only been a matter of, you know, really the last 10 to 15 years that we've been able to get in and actually do anything with them.
8: We were asked to give them any information that would help in the field to identify them
5: identification tags, wallets, rings, things that could, that could circumstantially point to specific individuals.
8: Both of us always said the same thing, we think we'll find that class ring, the man remembers seeing him wear the class ring, and we know that if the teeth are there, they're going to be
9: identifiable from other teeth. That front tooth, it was distinctive that they had that t- front tooth capped.
0: And in 2006, 10 years after Bill Wright's phone call and 38 years after Lieutenant Ransbottom disappeared, a JPAC recovery team set off once again
8: for Kamduk. And when I talked to uh, Brad Sturm in October before they left in January, and he showed me his maps, his paperwork, and, and he was confident that this would be a different time. For
5: me, the most important thing is to Bring those remains back to the family members who survived and never had uh, closure on that matter.
0: When War Stories returns, an anxious Laverne Rensbottom waits nervously in Oklahoma for word on whether her beloved son is finally coming home. March 2006, High in the mountains of Vietnam, a JPAC recovery team makes a determined search for Lieutenant Frederick Joel Ransbottom, MIA since 1968. The family of the missing soldier places its hope in JPAC anthropologist Bradley Sturm.
8: He told me, he said, You know, I told my crew, I had really promised this mother that I was going to try to find her son this time. That's what makes
5: me go the extra mile out there, and sometimes
0: you need that motivation
1: go to the field and begin literally beating the bushes.
0: At Kamduk Observation Post 2, the j recovery team searched with renewed intensity.
5: We used everything from chainsaws to machetes, taking out large trees, and then uh, uh, there was a quite a bit of elephant grass on the actual excavation area. I'll set up the grid to optimize the excavation. So that process involves setting in stakes, putting string Uh, within the stakes
3: and we have to keep an eye on uh, all these workers uh, plus ourselves to make sure we're not missing anything
5: and then the local workers will pass buckets of soil up to a screening station Uh, the americans are stationed on the screens
1: we need people who know the skeleton we need people who can recognize when you take that skeleton and then you shatter it into a thousand pieces 38 years
0: after the combat base was overrun The team found the remains of three U.S. soldiers missing in action. There you go, big hunk of bone. Including Lieutenant Frederick Joel Ransbottom.
8: They've got his class ring, his initials are there. They have his bill flowed, his initials are there. The dog tags are there. It was a tremendous amount of excitement.
9: At that point, the analysis starts. Most of what Joel's remains were was basically his his teeth.
0: What can an odontologist do to help
6: you identify this person? They're going to try to determine which teeth they have present.
9: For this
1: case right here, we have a tooth that is broken here on what we call the facial portion. Commander Kevin Torski
0: is an odontologist at the Central Identification Laboratory in Hawaii.
1: You can look at all those different features And being able to tell, even just from one tooth, that it is this individual.
9: They had already had a copy. They had his forensic dental uh, imprints. And so through the lab, they could just take imprints of his teeth and just actually overlay them and make a perfect match.
0: Dr. Torsky's dental reports are just one of many scientific tools
1: Dr. Holland uses to make a conclusive I.D. There isn't a formula that you can say you need this amount to make an I.D., and if you don't have that, you can't. At the end of the day, you, you make the I.D. when you can look that family in the face and say it's him.
8: Donnie got the phone call. He and his wife decided that they would get dressed to come to tell me at midnight that, that they had really found Him, we dropped everything and uh, Donnie and I bought that ticket and off we go.
6: And it's not uncommon for a family member or a veteran who served with the individual to come
8: in to visit the laboratory once the identification is made. The uh, ID laboratory in, in Hawaii let us see the personal items, the way they came in from the field
9: bagged with his name on him. Mom and Dad had bought this wallet for him just before he'd gone overseas and had initial. So his initials were in the wallet also. Plus his initials, you could actually read the initials inside the ring. Loved the ring
8: because it was so much a part of him. He loved being in school. but just really an, uh, always a happy person. So there was no doubt about seeing the
9: teeth. I mean, to, to us, really didn't even hardly have to see a forensic overlay or I.D. because once we saw that tooth we knew. We were
8: so happy to see these that we could laugh and cry at the same time. At the funeral, medic Doc Ho remembered his lieutenant.
9: Mrs. Ransbottom, Larry, Donnie, family members, friends, and our special band of brothers, fellow Vietnam veterans. It is an honor to be in your company today and to pay a special and long overdue tribute to a son, a brother, and a true American hero.
10: It was a celebration. Like she said, this is not going to be a funeral. This is going to be a celebration. And that's what it was. He's coming home.
0: Coming home. Larry and Donnie Wrensbottom know how important it was to bring their brother home to their family.
10: I thought I would go to my grave and never know what happened to him, completely, really. And yet my mother stands beside me knowing what happened to him. I don't think
8: closure is the right word, but uh, no. but being uh, at peace with it. Just grateful. Just so eternally grateful. Just happy that, that he's home.
1: We salved over a wound. We help knit together somebody's life. It's intellectually and emotionally satisfying. It's the best job I can imagine.
11: When War Stories returns... They were flying helicopters, which is always a dangerous mission in itself.
12: And after, you know, he never came home, I started asking questions. You know, why was he over there? What was he doing?
0: That's next on War Stories. The J-PAC mission is to bring home those who've fallen in America's service. But sometimes those who fulfill that promise make the ultimate sacrifice.
3: Our major event in J-PAC uh, history has been, of course, the uh, MI-17 that ran into the side of the mountain.
12: My dad was always an, um, an enthusiastic person. Navy Chief Hospital Corpsman Pete Gonzalez
0: lived in Arizona with his wife Marie and two children, Danielle and Matthew.
12: We were always packing up our camping gear, going out to the mountains, going bike riding. We were never wasting a weekend, never wasting a moment of our life.
11: He found a love for medicine, so he went through the Navy corpsman program, and then everything else kind of just added on, specializing in deep-sea diving, and actually he got into hyperbaric medicine as well.
0: His unique experience and qualifications were a perfect fit for j Pete Gonzalez volunteered for the assignment.
11: He always cared about people and going back and trying to bring some closure to the families of those that were missing was important to him.
12: In the spring of two
0: thousand one, Doc Gonzalez went to Vietnam on a JPAC mission.
12: I just you know thought it was another military mission that he was gonna go off on for another eight months and then be back.
11: While he was in Vietnam, he would send emails and he would explain the dangers getting from location to location they were flying helicopters which is always a dangerous mission in itself through different types of weather
0: on 7 april 2001 the jpac team had a delayed takeoff in a russian-built mi-17 helicopter
11: and eventually they did take off that day when they thought it was clear but over one of the mountain passes there was still a patch of fog that was lingering and that's what they hit.
0: In the crash, seven J-PAC personnel and nine Vietnamese were
12: killed, including Navy Chief Corpsman Pete Gonzalez. After, you know, he never came home, I started asking questions. You know, why was he over there? What was he doing? After his death, I got to know more about why they do it and the kind of satisfaction that it brings to American families around the world.
11: What was amazing there is we were grieving for him but yet there were people there that left their purple hearts and their MIA bracelets and things for their people that they fought with over in Vietnam or family members that had people missing and they would leave those remembrances on top of his casket and then that was what brought light to how many people were affected by what they were doing and the good that they were doing.
10: I can't say enough about JPack and these young men and women that do this. They are unbelievable what they do.
8: I'm eternally grateful for this happening in my lifetime and thank you to the to J-Pack.
9: I lost my brother, but what I feel like I gained was another family. Uh, to the guys that served with him.
2: It was fulfilling a promise that we made to bring all of our service members home. You're,
9: You're doing it one brother to a brother
12: one son to a son one father to a
1: father one one American to
12: another. The things that I definitely take out of him serving was how passionate he was about his job and how passionate he was about living his life and so knowing what he did for the other families over there. He had a big like satisfaction, I should say, for myself, like, to know, you know, that's my dad. You know, he's out there doing that for them.
0: There's more war stories from JPAC in Hawaii just ahead. Don't go away. Americans send more of their sons and daughters around the globe in defense of freedom than any other nation. And no country devotes more time and treasure to bringing their fallen home, as does the United States. Thanks to the men and women of j Soldiers, sailors, airmen, guardsmen, and Marines serving in harm's way can be certain they'll never be forgotten. And the families of the fallen have assurance that everything humanly possible will be done to recover and return their loved ones. The commitment here to reunite families with those who've fallen, to no more unknown soldiers, to leave no one behind, is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North, good night.